0: Welcome to the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host, and today's episode will be. Uh, probably, wrapping up the end of a series we've been doing on technocracy. So, as I have been giving this disclaimer the past few episodes, if you are coming into this episode fresh, you probably want to back up a few episodes and go back to the first one discussing technocracy frameworks, and I don't know exactly what that is, a half a dozen episodes ago or so. And we've been using illusions to look at different possibilities for technocracy and the evolution of that concept. And this is the tail end of that. We looked at the secular possibilities for technocracy and how that is currently manifested, as well as how that is evolving. Then looked at the religious side of things last time, with some similar models, people that want to uh, manage society and nations through a state or a more centralized structure, but they want to do so more in accordance to God's law from a Christian perspective. And so I covered that aspect last time. Now, this time, I want to cover something a little different, but still on the religious side, the other side of the religious side. And so this would be the idea of the kingdom of God. And that's something that I started off this season, I believe, with. I think the very first episode of season three was about this concept of what the kingdom of God is. And so I want to apply that to technocracy because... That there are a lot of overlaps, and it just is the end of this framework, the way I've structured everything. So, with the secular versions, I talked about the more material format for technocracy using a state it's fairly arborescent and hierarchical material it's obvious you can see it it's structured that type of thing and then that evolves into something more immaterial more rhizomatic more unknown where you can't necessarily see and pinpoint every little thing it's something that's more vague again more rhizomatic and that was those were the two views points of a more secular technocracy. Then in the last episode, when I talked about uh, these versions of a religious version of technocracy, I was also talking about ones that were more material, ones that use the state, like I said, where that they believe that you should have a Christian government that is governing the people according to God's law. That's uh, basically the idea of theonomy. And with this— they uh, obviously believe that government should exist and should be used. And even if their end goal is that there is no human government and that God is the final king, they believe that it basically that government should be used in the meantime to get to that goal, that government and the state is a means to that end. And even if many don't agree with the state and its modern form and all the corruptions that are involved there, they still do believe that it is not only okay, but something that should be done by Christians to use this vehicle, this tool of the state in order to shift society to be more in line with God's ways. And so that is a fairly materialistic view of things in this format of the material versus the immaterial. That's more arborescent, hierarchical, that type of perspective. And so this one that I am pairing that with is the more immaterial, the more rhizomatic, the less structured, less hierarchical, less centralized version of that same thing. So, what I guess I should do is start off with the definition of technocracy, because it's kind of easy to get lost in this, and we're talking about ideas that are uh, a little off in the clouds a little bit. It's a more intellectual playing around in a sense. It's uh, these are things that you can't really tie down as well or as easily. So it's kind of easily easy to get lost in the concepts and the different things. So, uh, let's focus back down on what technocracy is. So, I basically just did an internet search for technocracy, and I will read you the few results that I got. Some of these come from an online dictionary and the other from Wikipedia. So, technocracy, it is a noun It is a government or social system controlled by technicians, especially scientists and technical experts. It is a government by technical specialists. It is a system of governance where people who are skilled or proficient govern their respective areas of expertise, a type of meritocracy based on people's ability and knowledge in a given area. And then the Wikipedia one is that technocracy is a proposed form of government in which the decision-maker or makers are selected on the basis of their expertise in a given area of responsibility, particularly with regard to scientific or technical knowledge. This system explicitly contrasts with representative democracy the notion that elective representatives should be the primary decision-makers in government— though it does not necessarily imply eliminating elected representatives. Decision-makers are selected on the basis of specialized knowledge and performance rather than political affiliations, parliamentary skills, or popularity. The term technocracy was originally used to signify the application of the scientific method to solving social problems. In its most extreme form, technocracy is an entire government running as a technical or engineering problem and is mostly hypothetical. In more practical use, technocracy is any portion of a bureaucracy that is run by technologists. So, that's kind of a general idea of technocracy. The one thing that is a really big part of what technocracy is that didn't get mentioned in any of those is that it's a resource management system. That is the main thing. It is, I guess you can kind of read between the lines and get this, but technocracy is not a political party or plan or system or anything of that nature. Technocracy is a resource management system, it's using the scientific method, something very objective and applying that to this problem of how do we do society? How do we organize? How do we manage people? How do we deal with all of these variabilities that exist in a complex world with complex technological societies? And technocracy is an answer to that, but not a political one. And it is one that is overall ran by these experts, these technicians, these scientists, people that know their fields very well and apply those in a very scientific and objective way in order to manage and steer society in a, in a good way, not a conspiratorial way, at least from the, the advocates of technocracy would put it that way. And so with this being what technocracy is... I'm sure you can see that that sounds a little different than what I talked about last time with a religious technocracy. But although it is different because technocracy is inherently, at least in my opinion, inherently secular, the the goals and the methods and a lot about it is very similar. So with the more material version of a religious technocracy, they kind of want to do the same thing. It's not that they want rulers to be the most popular people in a culture or in a nation. They don't necessarily want it to be the people that are best at politics or these things. They want it to be the experts in the field that they believe is the most important field their religious field. This would be something along the lines of theology, but not directly. But they believe that it should be people that know God's law and biblical principles, they live that out, and they are the ones that should be in charge. They... They, in a sense, have built up a certain amount of merit, and this is a meritocracy of sorts. They just have a different perspective on the world. Someone with a very objective non-religious view of the world would see technocracy in the secular form, like the definitions I read, as being the obvious objective way of handling a society. Whereas someone with a religious perspective, when they hear an expert that is not a politician, that is an expert in their field of managing people and managing resources and these types of things, they automatically view that through a religious lens. And so these experts from a religious perspective are going to be different than these secular ones. Now, an expert from a religious perspective can still be a scientist. The whole scientific method and many of those kind of revolutionary scientists that came around uh, roughly in, I'd say, the century around that time period of that becoming mainstream, most of them were Christian. Most of them were very religious, and they were looking to use science to better understand God's world, or to better prove the existence of God, or to better see how God set things up to work, that kind of thing. So all in all, science is definitely not something that is in opposition to religion. They go very well together, and just because someone is religious doesn't mean that they don't want to delve deep into scientific matters. Now, when it comes to experts from a religious perspective, the church views experts differently, as I've been saying this whole time. A good example of that would be the role of elders in the time of Moses. So when Moses and the people left Egypt, they were without a king. They weren't technically a nation. They they were just this group of people that were out, and Moses was, by default, the leader of this group for many reasons. And he was well-respected. It wasn't something that he forced on people or anything like that. He wasn't an elected leader either. He just was the natural leader of the group. But with that came too much responsibility. There were too many people for one person to manage. It's the problem of central planning in general, and just a problem of a human that gets overextended. One person can only do so much. And so what ended up happening was that this role of helping to lead the people and hear disputes and all of these things that Moses was doing, this was divided up among a group of elders. So basically, there were elders that were well-respected in their given tribes and families and groups. And these people were chosen because they were well-respected. This was something that it was not a vote. They were not voted on. They're not elected representatives. But they also weren't people that were picked for political reasons and just forced on the group. They were people that in general were viewed as the leaders of a smaller group of people so to say they were very well respected they had proven themselves they were viewed as being very moral and ethical and wise these types of things you can go back to the values of plato with the philosopher kings they exhibited similar factors as as Plato talked about as being very good for ruling people and managing people. And so the view here was that these were the experts in hearing matters of the society. And they did that. That's what happened. These matters were split up. They no longer went just to Moses, but now they're split up to all these elders. And then if there was something that was a really big deal that they couldn't get figured out, then that would be brought all the way up to Moses. And Moses was kind of at the top of this hierarchy. So, There is a hierarchy here, and there are hierarchical roles, but they are based on meritocracy and reputation, which is very different, obviously, than the state that we have today, uh, much of the corporate world, and many other systems that exist. This is a system based on the experts. And the experts, again, are people that are wise. They are respected. They have proven themselves. They are good at hearing arguments and being open to multiple perspectives and finding the truth. These types of things, these are what these people are experts at doing. This is the expert class that rules in a sense, and rule is probably not the proper term there, but they are the ones that help manage what you could term a religious technocracy. If you think of the concept in the Bible about the church being a body— that a body is something that has many different parts that make it up. A body body is not just a head, it's not just hands, it's not just feet. But without any one of those things, the body would not function as it should. And so with the similarity here with the church would be that different people have different skills, they have different aptitudes, they have uh, different random aspects of life that they have been born into or experienced or whatever and so we all have roles to play we have roles that we are good at It's not that the foot is any better or worse than the arm. They are both very useful parts of the body, but they are obviously very different. And you could have something like the head, which might be considered, and especially symbolically, it is considered the top of the hierarchy of the body. But generally, it is thought of this way because it is the most important part in organizing the movements and the goals and the actions of the body, because these things come from the brain. They come from the head. That's where these signals come from to tell different body parts what to do and to plan and all of these things. So uh, the head is the best organizer for the rest of the body, just like you have leaders within the church And you might say a group of elders or a pastor, depending on how your church is set up. With mine, we have a group of elders, and the pastor is just one of this group of elders. They are universally respected and have proven themselves. There is a a kind of a vote. Basically, the way my church does it, and I think it is a good way and a good example here, is that you have this group of elders— and when someone is going to become a new elder, they must be nominated by a current elder. And if that nomination is accepted and the person is interested in these types of things, then that nomination, that person gets presented to the church and the church votes on it and pretty much it's it's not that they are voting for a representative it's just to make sure that there is unanimous consent of the rest of the church body and if someone has an objection and if there is some disagreement there then it can come out and it can be dealt with and that can be heard and so Again, even though there is uh, voting involved, it's not that people just vote for who they want best as their representatives. It's, It's just a way for people to be able to say, yes, I agree, or no, I have an objection. And so that's the way it works. But the whole point here is that you have these elders, whether it be in the time of Moses or in the modern church, where they are the ones that are considered the best for leading and organizing and steering the church body. And that is a role that is played, and that is played by these experts in these things. And uh, that definitely is different, Than a secular technocracy, but again, it is very similar. The secular technocracy has these people that are experts in things like social engineering and applying sciences and data and algorithms and all of these types of things. That is what those experts are good at, but overall, they're good at managing people. That is kind of the whole point, managing the society. They look at it on the secular side as more of a human race issue, a more macro issue, whereas the church on the religious side looks at things from a more individualistic perspective, where every individual has value and they should be respected and looked out for and all of these things, whereas you would probably get more of the view on the secular side that it's about the human race and we need to sacrifice the few for the sake of the many, that kind of thing. That's not really a church perspective. Even though there are plenty of people in the church that voluntarily choose to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others, and that is the ultimate expression of love, and so that's not a bad thing, but that is not something being decided on by the experts at the top on the religious side. The elders are not deciding that, hey, this person needs to be sacrificed. That's not how this works. Whereas on the secular side, that is how that works. Now, in the last episode, when I talked about the other version of religious technocracy, uh, they were basically taking these ideas that I've been explaining and implementing them in a very material, hierarchical, structured format, basically overlaying them on top of the current state. That's kind of their idea. And uh, eventually, most of them would like to get to something better and different. But uh, that is their current plan for implementation, whereas the idea that I'm talking about today, the kingdom of God, it is not something that is as material and structured. It is definitely not overlaid on top of the state or modern culture or anything like that. It is something very different. But in both accounts— the main thing that differentiates these from the secular technocracies would be that God is the ultimate expert, according to the Christians. And so with that, God is the ultimate expert in every way. He has unlimited merit, and so he is the one that is at the top. He is the one that is leading and organizing and managing and making these decisions, and he has every right to. The difference between the application of a more material religious viewpoint and an immaterial religious viewpoint would be that On the material side, these things are structured and overlaid and they're kind of combined with the nation or the culture that they are within. Whereas on the immaterial side, it is this idea of being in the world, but not of the world, being separate from the state, separate from the culture, separate from the society, but within the church, within the people that are Christians, within this group of people, there still is this same structure and hierarchy in these types of things. It's not that that doesn't exist in the immaterial format, it's that it exists in In its own realm, it is its own kingdom, whereas the version I was talking about last week, they want to apply that on top of the existing kingdom and kind of combine the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man so that the kingdom of God will eventually overtake the kingdom of man and be dominant and then be the only one. The view of the immaterial kingdom of God would be that it is something separate, that it grows, and the goal is for it to just become bigger and bigger and bigger independently so that it then does overtake the kingdom of man, but not by infiltration or force or anything of that nature, becoming entwined with it. Not that way, but instead by building itself out and becoming so strong and independent that it inherently becomes dominant in the world. So I think that should lay out these two very different views of this very similar thing. It's it's still a religious view on managing a society in an apolitical format in a way that creates this resource management system. So it it still does fit the general view of what a technocracy is. And in the modern technological age, that inherently does involve using technology. It just does. There's no getting around that, unless you go back to a less technological society, and that would involve uh, things that we're not even gonna get into here, not worth it. But moving on from that, The point that I have not gotten to would be resource management. And with this, on the religious side, especially in this immaterial kingdom of God, and I'll just refer to this as the kingdom of God perspective. With the kingdom of God perspective, you have resource management being decided on an individualized meritocracy type level. And so with this being the case, you have this idea that there are certain people that are good at certain things. There are people with different skills. It's that whole different parts of the body idea. And with this, these people are the best people for figuring out what to do with the resources that are involved with the thing that they're good at. So if you have someone that is a good shepherd, they are good at raising and taking care of sheep, then they're the ones that should probably be in charge of raising and taking care of sheep. And that would be the way that goes and so on and so forth. For every small aspect related to resources. And there are some people that are good at organizing, they're good at management, they're good at leadership. Like I talked about with the hierarchy of the church, that role of the elders. There are people like that that are wise, they are respected, and they would be the ones that would be on the upper levels of the hierarchy of managing the resources. So While you might have many shepherds and many people that do raise lamb and raise sheep, you might have this role that needs to be filled for somebody that organizes things on a much higher and bigger level for the entire territory— because uh, maybe there just needs to be some sort of organization and uh, intertwining with the markets and getting product to market and all of these types of things it just might work out and it probably would work out especially anarcho-capitalist perspective would say that it does work out this way that you have these roles and this need for organization that you have spontaneous order that takes care of a lot of it but then you do still have these roles for management and organization leadership these types of things And so what would probably be the case would be that this would be handled by experts, of course. But these experts would be more like uh, elder elder shepherds, in a sense. It would be people that have the skills and the abilities, the aptitudes, and have proven themselves within the field. They are an expert when it comes to sheep and raising sheep and all these things. But they are also an expert when it comes to uh, managing... Uh, larger things. And when it comes to being an elder in their community, they have reached that status and they have the skill set to do the leadership and the organization and these types of things. And so that would be the person that is more at the higher end of the hierarchy within this whole uh, realm of sheep within this market. And so it's very individualized. It is a very meritocracy-oriented structure, that there still is a management of these resources. It's just this difference that there is no central planner. There is no overall oversight per se. There's no body or group that's deciding that, hey, we need to up this resource, and we need to back off of this resource and shift some of our labor resources from this field to that field, and we need to get these resources from over here to over there. No, that is not how this works. In this more immaterial perspective, um, with this resource management system, it's a system that does incorporate things like spontaneous order and free and open and voluntary markets, and all of the benefits that are entailed in that. But again, there still is some structure. There still are experts in different fields that are making decisions, these types of things, and that is more of the way that these, uh, this system operates, this more immaterial kingdom of God type system. And so individuals then maximize their talents and their property to produce an abundance, when it's this meritocracy system, the people that are good at a thing are the ones doing that thing. And so therefore, that thing has maximum production or relatively maximum production. It's You can go back to the episode I did on anarcho-capitalism. I don't remember when it was, but it was somewhere near past the halfway point of season one. And I go over basically all of this stuff because it's it's very similar. It has a very similar perspective, but... You basically end up with this individualized system where the individuals are in the market according to their skills and aptitudes, and in doing so, the market is more abundant. It produces more. There's higher productivity because of this factor. It's not that some people are getting positions because of political pull or because they're friends with so and so or anything of this nature that you get in a political system. This system is different. So resources, the way that resources are viewed is that they are there to feed the family of the individual and the individual that produces the resource and uses the resource. Uh, probably the second level would be that these resources are used and created for the workers of whatever this field is. Then they are also, these resources are used to take care of the religious sector. Then they are also used in a more charity type perspective for those that are in need. So with a sheep example, if there is someone that runs multiple herds of sheep and has a few hundred acres of property, and that's what they do, let's say they have sheep and they have some orchards. So they're producing fruit, they're producing sheep, they have employees, they have other shepherds, they have people picking the fruit, they have people pruning, they have all this kind of stuff going on. This is what's being done. And it's being done by, uh, let's say it's Overall, it's ran by this patriarch of a family that has done this for generations. They're very good. They're very well-respected. They're playing this expert elder-type role, and they have family members that work for them. They have other people from the town working for them, and it's just this big business operation that is very successful and productive. Well, these resources—the lamb, the milk, the cheese, the fruit—all of these things— that these will first go to feed that person and his family it will go to feed all of his workers or they are sold for money and then that money is handed out to the family the people the individual and the workers you can look at that either way and probably a mix of both in most situations but that's where these resources first go then some of these resources the uh, biblical standard would be 10% they go to support the church And so this could be the pastors, the elders, the church building, the efforts of the church for ministry and outreach and charity and all of these types of things. Uh, The church has to have resources to do these things. And if the church is truly doing these things, then it doesn't have the time or ability to create its own resources. That's kind of antithetical. You can't hand out resources and create resources and do both to the fullest. You you could do half of one and half of the other and kind of wash even, but uh, the role of the church is to hand out resources. It's to use resources for the benefit of the kingdom of God in a loving way to help others. That is the goal. And so the best way for the church to achieve this goal is for others who are good at producing resources to then give a portion of those resources to the church and the church does what it's good at and uses those resources for the benefit of, of the church, of the kingdom, of uh, pretty much humanity in general. And so th- that's how that goes. But then there is always this last portion of people that these resources go to, and that would be people that are in need. There are some people that aren't very good at, they don't really have the aptitudes for... Uh, really anything that is highly productive and highly valued in a society. Maybe somebody is handicapped in some way, whether it be mentally or physically, or maybe someone is just older and they can't really work much anymore or uh, whatever. There are so many different reasons. Maybe someone's widowed and they're taking care of their kids. Who knows? There are all these reasons why some people are in need and those people in need should be taken care of. And if you look at this from a cold, eugenics, kind of secular perspective, those would be the people you want to die off so that they don't continue to breed and bring in these inferior genetics into your society, and they're a drain on society, they're not producing. It's like uh, when Plato says that you shouldn't treat people that are not good people, like criminals. You don't give them health care because you want them to die off. Whereas on the religious side, on the Christian side, we value life, individual life, And so that is never going to be the choice of the Christian church, of the kingdom of God. And so they view things differently. It's very individualistic. It's not about the entire human race and all of the genetics. It's about the individual person that has merit and value and a soul. And so that is the focus. So with that being the focus, when people are in need, they need to be taken care of. And... Again, if you're in this system in society where it's a meritocracy-based system, you have people that are doing these businesses and using resources in a way that is very productive and maximizes efficiency and effectiveness, because it's the people that are good at things that are doing the things, then there is extra. There's extra to give to the church, and there is extra to give to those in need. A good example of this would be the what the Israelites did. And they would leave the edges of the fields. It was one of the laws that they had to do so. And it was something that culturally was ingrained as well, that they would leave the edges of the field for gleaning as well as uh, they wouldn't go back through and do a second picking of whatever the crop was. And gleaning was basically just letting those who are in need come and pick off of any fields. So they were allowed and they were expected to come and harvest off the edges of fields. Or after the harvesters went through a field, then those in need could come through and get the the extras. You know, they're never going to get all of it or some stuff wasn't quite ripe yet, but it will be in a week or whatever. And that's what's left over for charity. So it's not just that the individual business owner that runs this sheep farm and orchard, it's not just that they sell all their product, they make a bunch of money, and then they hand out a few dollars as they find poor people in the street so that those poor people can have what they need. It's not just that, and I'm not saying that it is not that entirely, it can be that, but in addition, it's allowing these people to come and get what they need and producing what they need for them, which you're already producing what they need, you're already producing all these things, so you just allow them to take some of the extras. And from a business perspective, that can actually be a positive thing. If you're getting somebody else to come and pick up the leftovers, you're not paying the expensive labor of getting these small little bits that don't really add up to much. It's kind of a win-win situation, but the whole point is that it is taking care Of those that are in need. And when you do this, like I said, this was a law and it was ingrained in the culture. So you have culture and religion that are both steering people. Towards responsibility. It's steering people towards taking care of others and acting and living in love. And with those that are in need, it's not that they're just sitting around doing nothing all day. They are actually going to the field. They are actually harvesting themselves. They are actually putting in some work and some labor. And so you get this idea that a lot of people have of people addicted to the welfare state, and they just sit around on their couches all day and watch TV and don't do anything, when they're perfectly capable of getting out and doing something. Well, with this system I'm talking about where you have gleaning of the fields, they have to get up off their butts and they got to go do something. They've got to pick whatever it is they want to eat or they're not going to have something to eat. They might get some in the street or someone that's handicapped might beg on the street, that kind of thing, and they might get enough for what they need. But those that are capable are fully expected to go out and get what they need and what they need is provided for them. It is on every single field. The edges are always there and the leftovers after harvest are always there. So that's how that system is set up. So all of this is looking at how you manage resources. How do you handle resources? How do you create them? How do you use them? How do you distribute them? How do you choose who gets what? How do you take care of people and make sure that everyone gets the resources they need? All of this is handled in this uh, kingdom of God type system. And so this is, again, the idea of technocracy. It's a rule by experts and it is a resource management system. Well, we have both of those components in this kingdom of God viewpoint here. Now, you do have some that have joint communities within the church. So if you go especially into the uh, the New Testament, you have some examples, especially in Acts, where Members of a church body—so it's a group of Christians that all live in the same city that would be considered the church of that city—they come together, they basically would sell all of their belongings, they'd sell their property, their house, their things— And everyone would do this and pitch it all in together. And then they would use those to take care of all of them as a community. And they would share all their things in common. But then with the extras, and there would be extras when you combine everybody's resources, that then gives them the extra to go out and take care of other people and have charity for those in the culture around them. And so that's what they would do. But that's not to say that we all have to live in some sort of share all things in common community. Now, if you want a good example of this, I did that episode on the Bruderhof community, and I might have talked about the Amish as well. I can't really remember. It's in the agorism uh, section, did a series on agorism at the end of season one. That would be worth looking into, because I did dig into an example of this in the modern day that I think is a very good example. But... It's not just that uh, sharing all things in common in a joint community is the only way for the Christian church. That is not the case. There is also a very strong example of entrepreneurship. And if you look at someone like Paul, he had a skill that he was good at. I believe he was a tent maker, but don't quote me on that, I think. And I'll just go with that and pretend like it's true, even if it's not because it really doesn't matter for the sake of this argument. But uh, Paul, he was very good at doing this. And what he would do is he would travel to these different towns and cities, and he would practice his craft, and he would earn his living by working. He was an entrepreneur, in a sense. And that is how he supported himself as he went from town to town, sometimes for short periods of time, sometimes for years at a time. And that's what he did. He didn't just rely on the charity of the church, even though he could have, he chose not to. He chose to produce things on his own according to his own skills and aptitudes and make good use of that because he could. And so all people should use their abilities to produce value. And that's what Paul did as an individual. That's what these joint communities did as they came together. They would all have different skills and they would apply them to take care of the community as a whole, just like an individual entrepreneur would apply their skills in order to take care of themselves and their family and whatever their mission is that they're doing. It all goes together. When there is extra, this always should be given to others. And then when someone is lacking, you should receive from others. So as long as this is happening, then there is always going to be some for someone that is lacking. There is always going to be extra that someone is producing. And it's a system that is uh, circular. It's self-reinforcing. It, one side takes care of the other side. It It's a circle. And so... This is one that works very well for structuring a society where people are incentivized to do what they're good at, to maximize efficiency and effectiveness, to take care of others, to live in a loving way. All of these kinds of things are incentivized in this type of system. Now, this system is less scientific it's more natural per se. So uh, this is the idea of working with raw talent, with refined skill, building up community, these things. We are, we as human beings are naturally oriented towards these types of things. And so this is a natural inclination for human beings. And it is also a natural inclination to want to learn and discover and be creative. And the sciences can be a natural inclination as well, and those all go together. But instead of this society, the kingdom of God, being run by experts from a purely scientific manner, that is, uh, I would argue, not very natural. Uh, The natural way is that you have many different things, and they all come together, and that is more of the kingdom of God perspective. Now, the experts in the kingdom of God system, they don't rule others they help others, they serve others, they offer organization and trusted wisdom to the community and to other people. So, you do have this role of experts again, but it's not to rule people, it is to fill this this job, this need within a society for organization and for structure and for management. These are all not inherently bad things. And so these roles are filled by the experts and by the elders, but they are not just filled by the scientists that look at everything in a cold and calculating way and uh, do what the data tells them, period, and that's it, looking at the whole human race as their subset. No, this is experts. These are experts that are looking at the individuals. They are looking at meaning and morality. They are encompassing all of these things and bringing them in together. So Plato kind of gets to this when he talks about the philosopher kings, that they do incorporate ethics and philosophy in these kinds of ideas. But his philosophy oriented more towards uh, eugenics than it did towards Christianity, obviously. And so uh, the, the religious aspect of this and implementation of this obviously is going to be very different. But This is the idea of the kingdom of God when we are looking at it from a technocracy framework perspective. And again, this in general would not be considered technocracy, but technically when you break down the definition of technocracy, this one and the previous episode, the more theonomy oriented viewpoint, both of those are... Uh, they can be viewed from a technocratic perspective in how do you manage and run a society. So that is pretty much all that I have for this episode. I just overall want to get this idea across of what the kingdom of God is. And in addition to that, there is this kind of important distinction that With all of these other systems, all of these other technocratic frameworks, when I was talking about the material version, let's go all the way back to 1984, or the more immaterial secular version, let's say Brave New World, or the religious technocracy version that I talked about last week, let's say Theonomy, uh, all of these are things that, uh, for the most part, they exist solely in and of themselves. There's going to be overlap, but they are not going to exist and grow independently of each other at the same time. That's not really how it goes. As one grows, another diminishes, because they are all approaching things from a very similar way. Again, with the theonomy movement of having Christians take over the political rulership of a nation, then inherently the secular rulership is going to dwindle in its influence, and the uh, Christian influence is going to rise in that political sphere. And so you have the religious version rising and the secular version falling. Or with the material versus the immaterial on the secular side, as the state, the more material version, starts to uh, lose influence and power, then the immaterial version, let's say the brave new world, the social body, the technocracy of the experts, from that perspective, that starts to rise. And they, they will have overlap, but one is not going to rise in dominance at the same time as the other. Whereas this final example of the kingdom of God that I've talked about today, it is independent of each one of these things. So I just laid out three different frameworks, the two secular and the first religious. All of those can be in existence and it doesn't matter much which one is for this kingdom of God perspective, because the kingdom of God is independent. And that is the key thing, that the kingdom of God is not getting entwined with the state. It's not trying to take over the state. It's not trying to create this new technocracy that manage, manages things apart from the state and uh, start to manage all of society. That, that's not what it's doing. What the kingdom of God is, is a group of people, individuals, who have chosen to live a certain way based on certain beliefs, and they have their own ways of organizing, of doing charity, of managing resources, all of these things. But they are doing this on their own. The kingdom of God is a different kingdom. Uh, Like Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so uh, that's that's what it is. It's something separate. So whether it's the 1984 world that you live in, or whether it's the pre-technocratic world that you live in, or whether it's the brave new world, or whether you have some sort of theocracy start to take over... No matter which one of these things happens, no matter which one of these things you're living under, the kingdom of God still applies in the same way. Now, again, there might be, there will be differences, but what the kingdom of God is doesn't change. And the fact that it exists and that it grows and that there are certain roles and structures within it. All of these things are the same, and they are the same whether you have one system or another that is in charge of all society or that's uh, battling for power or whatever the case may be. So that's one of the things I really like about the kingdom of God is that it is independent of these other things. All of these other things are dealing with the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of man will do what the kingdom of man does. The kingdom of God is a different kingdom, and it will do what... God wants it to do, period. And so it is something that is very in line with the ideas of agorism and voluntarism, these types of movements, especially agorism. The whole idea of agorism is to operate outside of the system. It's not about fighting the system. It's not about getting involved in politics. It's not about any of this stuff. It's about creating alternative systems. It's the idea of the parallel polis. And that's what's Trying to be created, this counter economy. Well, it's the same idea with the kingdom of God. It's it's the same thing in a sense, where the kingdom of God is creating this separate system, and it has these systems. It's got a management system, a resource management system. It's got hierarchies. It's got all of the skill sets covered. It's got markets covered. It covers morality and ethics and all of these types of things, and so it is its own independent system. And that's the strategy of agorism as well. It's, It's this idea of creating your own independent system and running that independent system independent of whatever the heck is going on in the world. It doesn't really matter because these are two separate things. So that's the idea, and that's why I use this example of the original church, one of the reasons why I use that, when I am talking about agorism, especially throughout this whole season and season three. This is the reason for it because from some perspectives it is the same thing now from other perspectives it is a very different thing and it's not this is not the episode for explaining all of that but uh, from this one perspective of it being an independent thing and you're creating independent things instead of trying to overlay and overlap and take over the kingdom of man um, that is the that's where the similarities are Now, I did threaten to end the season after this episode, I think, in the last episode. I will not. There's one thing that I forgot about, and I'm glad I remembered because it's a good one, I think. And uh, that would be talking about the early church from the words of the people around during the early church, as well as some more modern people. But mostly, I have pulled from... Uh, very early Church Fathers, from some people talking about the histories of the Church, people like Edward Gibbon, um, you've got Tertullian, if you've heard of him, early Church Father, as well as, like I have one quote from uh, Bonhoeffer, who's uh, more more modern, not alive today, but more modern at least. And so I what I've done is I've compiled a list of quotes and excerpts that talk about what the early church was doing, how it was organized, how it influenced the society of its day, these types of things. So what I want to do is read those in the next episode. I think that will be, I think that will be the end of the season. We'll see. And so with that, I can read those and you can get a really good feel for how this really played out in history from a historical perspective. And how did the early church, the original Christians, deal with these matters of being under Rome and the Roman culture and secular culture of their day that was very immoral, and the institutional religion of the day that didn't like them very much either? That would be Judaism. And so uh, all of these things— they're very similar to things that we deal with today, living under a corrupt state with a lot of immorality in our modern culture, all of these types of things. How do we deal with this? Well, we can look at history and see some of the effects that they had and some of the ways they dealt with things. So that will be next episode. I would also like to give a reminder that if you have input on the next season, get that to me immediately. I am working on making that decision and outlining that. I've gotten a little bit of input so far. A few people have responded, but basically the deal is the next season can either be looking at the mainly the Sermon on the Mount, but some of the surrounding passages and looking at this biblical perspective and applying that to the state and to how we operate in the world from more of this kingdom of God perspective. So, obviously, this is a more religious uh, path to take, and that's an option. Another option is the secular path of looking at agorism and how do we apply agorism in modern circumstances what are some ways of actually doing that how do we apply that Uh, how can we work in our current system and work around our current system in a way that is in line with this philosophy that type of thing so those are the two options and there might be a third that we'll go with but we'll see Uh, that's what I'm looking for input on at least so please do send me input send me an email Our foundations at protonmail.com Or you can send me a message on Twitter. The handle is at foundations PC or who knows what I know you can comment on the website. Technically yeah yeah, that's probably about it but if you have any other ways creatively to get in touch with me feel free to do so but please do get in touch with me let me know what you think let me know what you want to hear the whole reason i do this is for people to listen to it it's not just for my own enjoyment so i would like to produce things that people want to listen to so help me to do that please And I would like to thank you for being a listener, for listening to this show. Thank you very much. Thank you, especially to all the supporters. People do give money to actually help support this show. And this show is paid for by those people. So that is really awesome. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for any reviews or ratings that have been left. It looks like there have been some ratings. I do not see any new reviews, but it's kind of difficult to figure that out sometimes but i will keep an eye on that as well and if there's anything else feel free to reach out and other than that i'll see you next time i'm out peace this has been our foundations podcast goodbye thank you for listening goodbye bye-bye